What's up, what's up? Another week, another podcast. This is your favorite football podcast, The Football Academy. I'm here, Spoon, tonight with Braden and Will. How's it going, guys? It's good. I enjoyed a week off from uh, from Premier League and from having to worry about bets and sweat that the entire weekend. Uh, so that was a nice little change of pace. I'm looking forward to it getting started back up. Um, but we'll, we'll talk about that later this week. Uh, I have enjoyed this week off from the Premier League and indulged in quite a bit of American sport. Uh, so congrats to LeBron and Lakers. And uh, and I'm super invested in football now. So I'm going to have to rewire my brain to get uh, ready for this weekend. But we got a better podcast and better things to think about than Lakers titles right now. <laughs> I mean, that is true. It was wild to see greatness on uh, in the same day with Rafael Nadal and LeBron James winning their titles. But tonight we also have with us a very special guest, our favorite guest on the show so far. Uh, and our, you know, the, I think you're the only one who's come here for the second time. So here we are again tonight with Jason Longshore. How are you doing, sir? I am good. How's everybody doing? I mean... I guess uh, Will is the only one who's pretty sad that the Lakers won because I really hadn't seen anybody salty about that other than, I mean, really nobody. But without going too much into uh, basketball and making it into the basketball academy, let's come back to football and what we know about because a lot happened even though the games had ended and our betting results had been done. The transfer window in such unique circumstances and such unique dates have presented us with quite a few teams that they, some of them spending a lot of money, some of them uh, not, you know, co- giving into the expectations that their fans had, and uh, some of them, you know, business as usual. So there's a lot to talk about in terms of transfer windows, and I'm going to come uh, straight to you, Jason. Uh, and one of your, I guess one of the easier questions for the night, this one is which team do you really think hit it out the park as far as transfers were concerned this year? I mean, it's still early to assess, but, and there are transfers that have happened late, but so far from what you've seen, how do you feel about the transfer window? Yeah. At least on the international side, um, Everton getting Hamas Rodriguez on a free is one of the greatest pieces of business that I've seen. Um, I've seen some people try to say it was 20 million pounds. I I think the guardian had that initially. There was no money exchanged because if there had been money exchanged, Bonfield and Argentina would have gotten a solidarity payment. They tried to get a solidarity payment through FIFA and they were told there was no money exchanged. So how they got Hamas on a free, I have no idea. Uh, Everton is a completely is in a completely different place than they were before the window. In my opinion, um, I think Tottenham was probably the highest profile one with what they did with Gareth Bale with Regulon. Um, is it going to pay off that? I don't know yet, but I think Everton's the one who changed their fortunes the most in this. I also think Leeds did really, really well with the business that, that they pulled off. They got guys who were a good fit. And it's kind of crazy that 
Spain played during this international break and had two Leeds players on the field at one point. Absolutely. And I would also say the one of the best players for England, and if not the best midfielder for England right now, also comes from Leeds in uh, Kevin Phillips. So it is quite the monster that Bielsa has built out there. So I'm going to come to you, Will, because of all the Everton praise. As a Liverpool fan, sir, how do you feel? about what's going on and uh, we have a derby to look forward to this weekend too so it could be one of those fiery ones in a way we have never seen um at least in my lifetime it's both very exciting and very not exciting to have everton be this good it from the neutral perspective everton plays they have players and they play a brand of football that's kind of very exciting to watch calvert lewin is has proved himself to be the player that he was kind of touted to be, I suppose. It's weird. It's very weird to have them be good because in my time as a Liverpool fan, Everton have not been a joke, but they've always been kind of like bubbling under. And this is the first time that they've kind of made that next step into bubbling over, I guess. It's a Tottenham's ascendancy with Gareth Bale and how they kind of moved up. That's kind of the feeling that Everton's giving me right now. And I absolutely hate it. Well, thanks for your uh, letting your feelings be well known to everybody. Well, uh, Raiden. <laughs> so Ever- Everton have done well. So have your crosstown rivals. Do you think uh, Spurs are out here to, you know, compete seriously the way Everton also look like they are, or do you think maybe you guys are about to have a parte? So I think that depends on uh, how we define compete seriously. Are, are we talking title? I mean, it is an open-ended word up to your, that can be defined by you. Okay. That's how I, I would mean, say it right I, now. I, I'm still pessimistic on, on Spurs getting to the title, even with these moves. I, I do think, you know, we haven't seen Bale, though Kane and Son have looked really, really good so far. Um, I think we'll need to see how Bale integrates into that lineup. I'm curious to see what version of Bale we're going to get. Are we going to get kind of the motivated Bale that we saw three or four years ago at Madrid? Or are we going to get the Bale that we've had the last uh, one or two years? Because I think that makes a big difference. If, if Bale is out there and, you know, really trying and really uh, putting in the effort to, to change his team, it's a massive, massive boost for them. But if he's kind of going through the motions and he's kind of like, yeah, like I'm like, I was a big guy here at Spurs back in my day and that sort of thing. Like, I think it's going to be a very different thing. So I, I think we have to see how that's going to work out. I think there's locker room things that are still going to have to be worked out with there. And I'm not sure that Jose is the best guy to handle some of those things, um, but we'll see. I think that they did good business overall. And I think that, you have, I kind of saw them as a Europa league team before the, before the window ended. And I think you kind of have to see them as a top four, uh, definitely contending team. Now, I, I don't think they have enough to get to the title. Well, I think that'll also be defined by where or how many points you necessarily need this year for the title. Cause I don't think it's going to be a repeat of a hundred or 99, 98 points that we have seen from the past couple of seasons. So one of the questions that I find very interesting right now, as far as Everton and Spurs are concerned, um, 
Jason, in terms of the managers, it feels like two managers who had been kind of written off from the very top, who are both kind of, uh, had windows who maybe want to come back and be considered right up there because a lot of the bigger clubs are being, you know, led by the younger generation of managers in terms of uh, half of the big six, pretty much. So uh, what do you think about this current, uh, I guess, recovery of all the old managers coming up and uh, doing their thing again? Yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, Jose Mourinho was maybe seen as damaged goods when he left Manchester United and Carlo Ancelotti, people have said the game had passed him by and, you know, Ancelotti going to Everton, I think was a bit of a surprise just in and of itself. Mourinho going to Spurs after Pochettino was not what was expected. Uh, we don't have an all or nothing on Everton to see what Ancelotti's like behind the scenes. Uh, we have seen it with Tottenham um, very, you know, heavily edited to make Jose Mourinho look great in it. And he did. Um, he played up to it. Absolutely. But he does seem a little different. He, he doesn't seem as angry and bitter and jaded as he did. Honestly, since he has, since he left uh, Real Madrid, I, I'd always kind of felt like Real Madrid broke Jose Mourinho a little bit. Ancelotti. It's funny. I've just started reading his autobiography that's translated into English and he is hilarious. So I could see him being somebody who would be a good fit for the group that he has now. And and he's been able to get a good window in, bring in some players that he wanted to get some guys that he's worked with some guys that he wanted to work with again and Hamas and Allen and they're going to be a problem. Um, are they going to be a team that wins the league this year? No, I don't think so. I think it's still down to Liverpool and Manchester city, even with all of the moves that people have made, but they're going to challenge. And I, I think the biggest thing is I'm with you on the fact that I don't think Liverpool and city are going to run away and hide from everybody. And that was something that hasn't been as much fun in recent years. I don't think that's going to happen this year. I do think they're the best two teams, but Everton Spurs, Arsenal, uh, Chelsea. Um, I'd like to say Manchester United, although I'm not completely sure of that one. No, no. Um, they're going to be in that next group. Manchester United should be, um, but they had a horrible window. Horrible, horrible, horrible. I'm going to let you chime in first, Braden. Yeah. So I don't, I think Manchester United failed to address a key area of the window in that they needed a winger uh, of some sort, like a true out and out winger and not just a striker who can play wide, which is kind of what I think they have in both Mason and Rashford right now. Uh, I, I think they failed to do that. And that's a real problem uh, for Manchester United, but I, I kind of like the other business that United did. I like Tellers. I, I like Donny van de Beek. I, I like some of these guys. I would have liked to have seen them sign a defensive mid because I think that's, kind of a weakness for them. Like I think they can still trot out match for most matches. And then uh, McTominay does, th there are things that McTominay does well, even if I kind of doubt his ability to, to really play at the top four level week in week out. Uh, but I think they need another addition there, but it's, I think people have gotten a little carried away with just how bad of a window it was because they failed to sign Sancho and and when they did that they didn't have a, they didn't get a backup they just kind of 
whiffed on a lot of things there once they didn't get Jaden Sancho. They wasted their time. And yeah. that, that's what's so frustrating is, I mean, it was obvious they weren't going to get him a month ago and, and they kept going on about it. And I mean, who do they end up getting instead? Edinson Cavani, who about 10 other teams passed on, you know, I mean, including inter Miami, they passed on him. Um, it doesn't make any sense. And I think they needed a center back and they let one go to Roma in Chris Smalling that one didn't want to be there. So they've, they've got bigger problems than winger to me. And they focused on it so much. Tell us is, is he's okay. Um, is he a whole lot better than, than Luke Shaw? I don't know if he makes that back line that much better. Yes. Yes, he is. I don't I mean, but it's not demonstrably better. I disagree because Okay, go go ahead, Jason. I disagree because it's not like that's the biggest problem on the back line. Did you upgrade a position a little bit? Sure. And I don't think it's as big as you guys do. I think you need another center back. I think that's the problem. And they didn't address it. And the guy so that I completely agree with you. They they let a guy go to the Serie A because he had no interest in being there anymore. I mean, it's there was no strategy. There was no plan. And you got down to the last day of the transfer window. And I, I said it on soccer down here and, and soccer over there. Ed Woodward is like the guy who is at TJ Maxx and buys $200 worth of stuff in the checkout line. When you walk up and you see all the little shiny things near the, the register, that's what he did. <laughs> there was all no strategy. <laughs> So many headphones. <laughs> yes, he got every set of headphones. <laughs> Jelly beans. That's what he did. It's it's so frustrating because everybody's gonna go at Ole after the the big loss, and it doesn't matter who the manager is. It really doesn't at this point because you're never gonna build the right kind of team. I like the uh, the Diallo move. I like the Palistri move. Those are both fine. Those are moves for the future. They've, they've been getting some of these young guys, but you can solidify a champions league spot going forward. If you would use this window properly and you didn't, and now you might've got passed up. So I completely agree with what you said about Edward Woodward, about where the window went for Manchester United. I think the reason for me, Tellez is a player that I think can make a big impact is because our fullbacks, none of them provide width. And I think that's why, like, oh, Brayden and I have talked about this here as well, where because United don't have a natural winger and also don't have fullbacks who can really attack, because Wambasaka looks, you know, you know, unnatural on the ball every single time he touches it. And then you have Luke Shaw, who just isn't good enough. And same with Brandon Williams right now, even though he's younger. So I look at, Tellez and it gives me a product who can provide the width when Rashford wants to cut cut in and the fullback and the winger can't just double team Rashford and I think that's where Manchester United if they had gotten a right winger and whether it was Sancho or Isar or Dembele even at the very end like I think it would have made a huge difference um, and again like we don't have a defensive midfielder which exposes that back line like, I, I don't think Smalling would have really solved the problem in that regard as well. Because, And this is where I think the frustration that you very well pointed out is we get to these spots where the manager's done well enough. We need 
those top top players at this point in order to take the next step and our board just fails to deliver every single time and i think this is and that's what's happened again because it happened to Mourinho after 2018 yep smalling would have been better than not addressing center back at all which just is mind-blowing to me um and you're right if go ahead does the smalling that doesn't want to be there make him make them better though no, I mean, that's the problem is you weren't going to be able to keep him, but that's what's so frustrating about the situation is why doesn't he want to be there because of the way everything has been run for a while now. And you knew he wasn't going to be there. You knew you weren't going to convince him. I don't think they tried and you didn't bring anybody in. You just didn't bring in a center back. And if you're not going to address center back or the six, you're going to get overrun by teams. It doesn't matter if, if Telus makes you have more width on that side. It honestly could be even worse if you're going to open up more and you don't have a good six and you're not solid at center back. That's the scary thing. I, I think Manchester United watched in this window, Tottenham and Everton potentially pass them by. And that's the, the scary thing for a club that should be in the time where they finally got in back into the champions league. Okay. Now is your spot to, solidify four and start to push for two and three. And they, I don't know, maybe they're six or seven now. I I agree with that. Um, and I think will also touched upon this quite a lot after like after project restart where United looked like a team that, you know, was coming into form towards the end of the season. And I think a regular year where the players get their proper rest and, you know, the Martials, the Rashfords, the Greenwoods come back a little bit more rejuvenated. I think they would, it would have made a huge difference because I think you're seeing this with a lot of teams, not just Manchester United, that um, teams that went deep in Europe uh, really haven't done as much. So I do think it's going to be fascinating to see if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer can save a job. But uh, I would currently say that it's between him and Scott Parker and who is the first manager fired. Yeah. I think it'll be Parker just because Fulham's horrible. <laughs> God bless. <laughs> eh, sorry. I apologize, but it's bad. So moving on from uh, Manchester United to poor man's version of Manchester United, Newcastle United out there with Mike Ashley, a whole takeover situation that, um, you know, I think a lot of fans wanted for them that did not end up happening. Their dreams from uh, signing Mbappe, this transfer window, kind of vanished. And they did get end up getting uh, an English striker in Callum Wilson, who has gone out there and done a lot of good. Amiron still getting going. Uh, do you think they are going to have a shout at doing anything in terms of a top 10 finish, maybe? Maybe. Um Wilson's a good signing. I like that. I don't know what's going on with Miguel Almiron. He's been kind of out of the lineup and off to the side. And I don't know why um, he's, he's went on international duty with Paraguay and played consistently and done well. So I don't know what's going on there for Steve Bruce. Um, is Wilson going to be enough to get them further up the table than they were last year? I'm not convinced of that just yet. I still think they're pretty thin. So I, I think Newcastle finished better than they did last year. Uh, I think it's, 
I think it's not just Callum Wilson. I think it's St. Maximum being there another year. And at some point I have to think that Steve Bruce is going to just put Andy Carroll out to pasture and, and not do that anymore. No, um, uh, Andy Carroll's his boy. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> to the death of me. <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't know. Like, I don't have Lord. any expectations of Steve Bruce figuring <laughs> things out. That that's actually fair. I, I do that's think fair. that they have a little more depth as well. Like Ryan Frazier is a piece that I think is going to contribute for them and is going to be a good, uh, a, a nice little piece for them as long as he keeps his head on straight. Like I think he lost a little bit of Burmeth last year, uh, but it, he was a double digits assist guy just a couple of years ago. Like he's he's a good player that I think can improve them and they have the opportunity to just be a team that's absolutely devastating on the counterattack just through their speed. And I think if Bruce commits to that, which he won't because he will want to target forward to hold the ball up and do all the things that they're not really set up to do. Um, But if they somehow get out of that, I think there's a, there's a style of play that can make them very effective. Well, uh, are you still confident about that $75 bet? I, you know what? Honestly, yeah. I, the reason I feel confident about it, and this is now that you guys have mentioned it, I think I'm kind of just waiting for Steve Bruce to go away. Like, full due respect to him for being a decent person, but I think the way that Newcastle is building the team now, they have an idea of what they want to be. And Steve Bruce just happens to be a name who people know, and that's why he's there. He's not going to last long with the way he plays. They have an exciting team. They're going to find a manager who's going to get that to click, and they're going to be fine. I'm hoping it happens sooner than later so I can get this bet to pay off, but I think they'll be fine. Also, Sapoon, you've said it before. I just want to go on record. John Joe Shelby is so underrated as a player in as a whole, uh, and he's kind of a veteran voice on this team. He doesn't have much success to say, but he's a journeyman and I like him on this team leading those younger guys forward. So I just wanted to point that out and give him his due. Cause I never do. Very underrated player. I totally agree. Uh, it's Shelby going to be the new Danny Ings. Like, am I going to have to be upset that we have to talk about him every week now? Ooh. He was for a hot minute. And then I'm still the the Danny Ings thing is just because he should have done better at Liverpool and he got injured and I just want him to do well in life. That's really what it is. Like I like him as a player, and also he's kind of he's got decent control when he's on the ball. Like he plays it from under himself pretty well. He stays up, I guess. <laughs> I have to explain that myself that to that Jason is one now. Of the <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I have to explain my love. Just to catch you up, Jason. Uh, Will and I have a $75 bet uh, that we made on the f- preview episode because he was very bullish about Newcastle United making it to the top 10. Ooh. And I was like, um, I don't think so. But yeah. uh, yeah, I would have took that action before I could. <laughs> <laughs> They're eating me alive. It's fine. <laughs> uh, but uh, I think it's, it's funny because they are doing well, but the two teams that are in the bottom half along with Manchester United right now that aren't doing very hard are Man City and Wolves. Uh, Jason, any thoughts on, you know, uh, Pep Guardiola officially crossing half a billion spending in defense? 
that's I think the U.S. Department of Defense would be very proud of what he's achieved out there at Manchester City. It's it's weird with City at this point. Um, Pep has never wanted to stay at a club long term. He said that consistently after his experience, just with four years at Barcelona, he said he'd never stay past three. Well, he's done that. Um, I, I don't know if it's going to end well for him. I I don't know if it's this season that it doesn't end well, but I think he's starting to burn out a little bit. Um, He's got basically to hope that that Ruben Diaz is, is the guy and fixes it all. I'm not convinced of that just yet. That's a huge expenditure and we'll just have to wait and see. Um, Ake will help, but does he really change Manchester city? Did he, did he change the fortunes? I'm more concerned about Manchester city than anybody else that I thought would have been in like the top five, six, even Manchester United. Um, because I thought United would be towards the back of it city. I feel like if they start to really have the questions about them, everybody's going to pounce. Everybody's waiting for city to fall apart. And the, 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 the tabloids, everybody will pounce on this. And I just think Pep's going to be at a point where he doesn't want to deal with it anymore. And he could walk. I don't think he'll do it during the season, but this could be the last year for him unless it turns around. And I just, I'm not a hundred percent convinced it will. I think uh, I saw Kevin De Bruyne, a statement about Manchester city. And uh, kind of the way he talked about having Messi potentially on the team, it didn't really sound like an environment that like a lot of the players were having fun. Sound kind of sounded like you know Mourinho's third seasons normally. Yeah. So it's weird. So and again, we have never seen this from Pep Guardiola. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, like it, at Barca, he had a very very great team. Just you know happen upon him along with the greatest player, arguably the greatest player of our generation. And then he goes to Bayern easy, like three years, never wins the champions league. And again, like we have never seen him do this. Who was it who came out and said recently, basically that, uh, Pep wasn't a good manager. He was only good because he had Messi on his team. One of the, the English pundits said that in the last week. And I wanted to break things, uh, over and over again when I heard that one. Um, the champions league doesn't define everything to me. I think winning the league does. And even at Bayern, he dominated, he dominated Germany. He didn't win the champions league. Uh, he had two of the best seasons you've ever seen in England with Manchester city, but it feels like they're on the decline And, and you're right. It sounds like it's not fun there right now. Uh, could Messi have brightened things up? Yeah, obviously. And you know, if you get him on a, on a pre-contract in January to join next year, maybe everything that we're saying here is thrown out the window because that's, you know, Manchester city version 2.0. I don't know. Um, but it feels like it's really heavy around there right now. And I don't know if, if Pep's really in the right mindset to deal with it. If you're hearing players like De Bruyne and others, like kind of have that feeling. I don't know. It could go south quick, it feels like. So I'll say this. Um, I don't think he can get fired in the middle of the season. But it will need something like that 
I think for City as a team, as a squad to like come together and win the Champions League one day, because I think they have too much talent and 99% of the times, and I think this is what happens with Pep's teams, he just outclasses everybody on a very weekly basis in the leagues. And when they come into the Champions League and they kind of get punched in the mouth like a couple of times, they don't know how to react. And that's where they keep getting, you know, just shell-shocked and not knowing how to reply to certain situations. And it's not fun right now, as as we've kind of agreed on with Manchester City. But I do have to ask you, a team that, about a team that I didn't think was going to be here right now, Uh, a team that quite likely would have gotten relegated had a goal line decision stood correct right after Project Restart. Uh, Aston Villa, who held on to the, you know, Jack Grealish, who was supposedly valued at 80 million. And the first time we all talked, we said that, you know, that's kind of crazy. Um, Held on to him, went and got walk-ins from the championship very from a very very entertaining Brentford side and then put seven past uh Liverpool like th- that was a day of you know honestly crazy score lines with another 6-1 which is becoming like a decade uh theme for Manchester United you just start a decade off with 6-1 losses at Old Trafford but Liverpool did not see that 7-2 coming at all that was one of the most insane things I have seen and didn't expect it. And, and will you got to chime in on that one for sure. But I also, when you talk about Villa and, and you talked about Watkins um, coming in, I want Braden to talk about what I think is the biggest move Villa made in getting Emiliano Martinez. I think that was a great piece of business. And are you Braden sad to see him gone from Arsenal because I thought he could have been their number one. So I approached it as I would have been happy with either Emmy or uh, Leno as our number one. I, I, to me, it was let's take whatever the bigger offer comes in for. And I'm fine with either, to be honest. I think they're both very good keepers. Uh, I, I think it's right to point out that he really helps out that Villa team. One of the things that I I really liked about him in the run in with Arsenal was just how commanding he was in the box. Like, you know, crosses would come in, he would go in and catch them. It was not punching them away. It was, he was dominating in there. And I think that's a presence that really kind of helps solidify a back line and give a lot of uh, kind of poise and presence and, and kind of some of the things that, back lines need to operate at their, their top, top level is just the confidence that the keeper can bail them out. If something doesn't go right. And I think Emmy does that. I would have loved to see him stay at Emmy. It's always kind of sad when a guy who's been at a club for 10 is no longer with the club, but you know, I, I'm very happy he has the opportunity to be a first choice keeper. Hopefully the first choice for Argentina, um, and I, I hope he does really well. I mean, I think Sergio Romero is probably out there mad because he was supposed to go to Everton, mm-hmm. which would have made Argentina all of a sudden have two of the best uh, old keepers. I actually don't know how old Martinez is, but Romero's pretty old. Yeah, but neither one of He's them are past, uh, Armani from River Plate. That's the guy who's getting the starts right now. 
That is also very, very true. He's so good. Yeah, I like Armani. <laughs> well, do you think uh, you guys are going to recover from that 7-2 loss and do something against Everton? Uh, if you listen to the last podcast, I talked about it being a bad day at the office. Um, and I still kind of stand by that statement. I I have said this before, and I, again, want to go on record since Jason's here and maybe get his thoughts on it too. I think that Van Dyke is becoming a little too cavalier and a little too confident, and I need him to stop that because it's becoming a problem for us. I think some of the players are becoming a little too okay with who they are. And when you have other people running up and down the pitch, trying as hard as they are, particularly Andy Robertson, who's just busting his ass as much as he can and love him the most. Don't like we're champions. Don't play like play like there's still some hunger because the rest of the team seems to be firing on all cylinders and the back line seems to be coasting on their own laurels with the exception of Andy Robertson. You know, this is something uh, we were talking about Pep earlier and something that he said I think after their first title that has always stuck with me, um, first title at Manchester city, when they brought in a lot of new faces after that. And he said, you know, I have to keep bringing in new players to challenge the players who have won everything because they don't have the same motivation. They've already won everything There's nothing for them to keep chasing. I mean, at some point you do exactly what you're saying. Well, you, you, you let up because you know, what else is there to do? You've already done it all. Everything's good. You got a big house and a big car and your, your bank account's huge. All is good in the world. So you, you slack off just a little bit and that just a little bit makes a huge difference. I wondered coming into this season with Liverpool, haven't had the two years they did. We saw it with city last year. Could they have the same motivation? And they didn't really change over a whole lot. So is it going to happen for them? Because the thing that's jumped out to me about Liverpool and, and I, you could probably answer this better than I could. The, the Klopp situation with Roy Keane, I know everybody got a good laugh out of it, but why is the attitude getting defensive with a team that's won the champions league and, and won the league going away in back-to-back years. I don't know. Things just feel odd and, and I don't know what it is. And is it relaxing? Is it feeling like you're not getting enough respect? Is, is it trying to find some kind of internal motivation? I don't know, but you don't normally have that bad day at the office that badly unless something's going on. There seems to be, for title winners, it seems to be like n- the world is crazy. It seems very strange for them to be title winners and they're playing like a team who like they've already kicked it into third gear for me. And Klopp is getting very defensive because he like his idea of football is not being executed the right way. And he just has to defend it no matter what. And that's what it feels like to me. The players have kind of, slagged off a little bit and he can get into them and make them fire up a little bit more, but him going at Roy Keane, it was kind of funny to me, but at the same time, I see him being like, no, we played a tremendous brand of football and you can like stuff that he's, he's trying to defend his boys because he knows his boys are kind of slagging off. And if that means he has to go back and get more into them, or he just doesn't have that anymore, I don't know. But 
in that in that particular instance, I feel like it was him being like, I'm going to stand on the front line and defend my boys for the performance and maybe some of the frailties that they had, knowing full well that these guys either are super tired from everything they've done. And that's a very evocative title win, very emotive title win. It's going to take a lot out of you. These guys may just not be in what? the line. What? I'm, I'm, you I know it's going to come thirty points clear for months. I, and, I, we won a, and we won a fucking title during COVID. It's evocative. And three people, months to think about how all you need was like six points to win the title. I I can't I can't go on this road. I try so hard to not be the the pretentious Liverpool fan, but I just became it. It's fine. I think like legit. I think the boys are out of the mindset. Whole preseason though. Like, and I think th- this is where, like, I think Jason does point out something interesting is I can look at Manchester City, I can look at Wolverhampton Wanderers, I can look at Man United and kind of just say, like, you know, these, these are the situations where they made mistakes and, you know, they played late into Europe or whatever. I look at Liverpool, it was essentially preseason after, like, you knew you were going to win the league. You had a proper preseason that a lot of teams didn't really end up having. So it's like, and you weren't in Europe at all, weren't in the FA Cup. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not going to give the benefit of the doubt to Liverpool that I'm like willing to give to other teams. So I think that that's like, for me, when you say you labored to the title and now you guys are struggling, it kind of just like falls into, uh, you know, some... I think false news claims right there. I, Look, I, I didn't take it that way, Will. Like I didn't take it like it, it, the that they're they're you know the way the title happened that you're taking out of it. I I go back to that whole idea about what are they motivated about because they they've done everything and, and you're gonna have a natural letdown. There's just no way to avoid it. But what stands out to me is is that moment because the Jurgen Klopp Roy Clean Roy Keane situation happened uh the, the after the game before you get blown out and if he's defensive about Roy Keane talking about sloppy moments in the game to the point that he says they played perfect and excellent and and they didn't make any mistakes and it's like settle down there Jurgen like relax my friend and, and then they go out the next game and get run off the park. That should be ringing some alarm bells. Something's not right. Roy Keane, the Oracle. Yeah, it's crazy. Like that, <laughs> that whole thing got so weird and it became a joke. But when you get that defensive and then lay the biggest of eggs, the next match, uh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, the only ex- explanation I had was essentially Liverpool taking you'll never walk alone very seriously and looked at Manchester United and went, hey, if you guys got embarrassed, we'll, we'll be right there with you. We'll be right there with you. My but, strongest uh, enemy is the enemy of my friend. <laughs> uh, so, so one go thing ahead, about that game is I think, you know, obviously 7-2 is a serious scoreline that I just, it's very difficult to kind of deal with if you're a Liverpool fan. But I I do think if you want to look at the XG of that game, like it's, that was a little bit closer a game and maybe it was, well, not closer a game. Liverpool were blown out the park, but I I do think that um, 
if you look at the XG, I think that there were some fluky moments in that game that went Villa's that went Villa's way. And I think if you're Liverpool, you kind of can compartmentalize that and just say that was a one-off. Let's, let's go on. Um, whether they actually do that, I think will be really interesting. It's to just say, you know, we had Mane and Allison, two of the best players in the, in the Premier League out for COVID. You know, let, let's just not deal with this. But here's the funny thing is just a few hours before that, Manchester United gets blown out. And before the game's even over, it, it's always fired. Get him out of here. He's done. He needs to be canned. And then Liverpool goes and one ups it and giving up seven. And it's, well, it's okay. It's like, well, hold on. That's, I know it's because point. one won the title and one didn't, but you get blown out, you get blown out. I yeah. think there's some, I think there's something to be said, like the, it, as I know Liverpool fan, but to sharp on United for a second, the Ole out rants after that stomping. I don't know if that's the right response to that. I think there might be a deeper response to that. If anyone in the Liverpool camp is saying clop out after we get stomped by Aston Villa, then you should probably like another team. I don't know. Like that doesn't make sense. I I don't understand any manager getting yelled at about being out right now, particularly Ole because of how he finished last season. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm not saying that they should both be out because they got blown out, but it just gives you, a, I think, a, a little bit of a glimpse of of how different teams are, are treated and looked at, and the reaction to these results. Because it was catastrophic that one got blown out, and it was no big deal. Shrug your shoulders that the other one did, and neither one's good. I mean, you get blown out by that big of a scoreline. Something has gone wrong. There were a lot of fluky moments in that. Villa game and in their scoreline, they, they had some strange moments, but you know, it, you didn't see a lot of fight either. And that's something that will not work for a Jurgen Klopp team. It just won't. And I've wondered about where they're headed with the, when the whole Tiago stuff came up, I didn't know how he fit. I wasn't sure if it was the right move for them because they're going to have to adapt more to fit him in. And I, I love him as a player, but he's so different for Liverpool. Does it take away good things to get him into the team to try to be something else when what you were before was dominant? Did you really need to be something else? I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure yet. I think Thiago also being out for that game potentially a, a game that he could have been a part of um, also changes, you know, their approach a little bit, but sure. it is a good question as far as they're concerned, because I look at also the transfer that they missed out on as far as Timo Warner is concerned. Um, he hasn't made the hottest start and he kind of is playing this left wing striker role where they're kind of, uh, switching as uh, things currently stand before Chelsea gets, I guess, Pulisic and Ciac back into the team. But um, Liverpool did end up signing Diogo Jota as well, who's, I guess, a similar profile to Warner without having had the accolades that Warner's had because you saw glimpses of what Jota could do on a Wolves team. And he looked good uh, in that win and on his debut. But again, I think when you're at that level, it takes a different kind of a player to come in and take your team 
into the right direction. And I think motivation plays a big part because if the players know that they're good enough, they aren't going to be as severely motivated. But uh, so I I do want to kind of come back to the whole transfer uh, market and kind of wrap up this discussion before we move on to uh, project big picture. Uh, quick thoughts on Chelsea in terms of everything that they have spent and even they almost had an embarrassing situation at West Brom. Uh, you know, that it could have gotten bad, but they showed some fight and the kids that they didn't spend money on ended up saving Lampard and his face. So uh, what do you think of Chelsea so far in terms of what you've seen? I don't know if, if Lampard's the, the guy to get the most out of this group. I want to see how he manages all of this talent now. I'm not convinced of Frank Lampard's managerial chops just yet. Uh, Chelsea spent almost as much as the entire Bundesliga in the transfer window, which is insane when you really look at it. And they've Especially added when they had all of Chelsea's money. <laughs> well, that's true. Um, but what's crazy is at times, some of the talent that they brought in, it feels a little redundant in some ways. So how do you make it all fit? And that's where... I think they might be found out that Lampard is not quite to the level of the teams around him. I mean, look, you're going to be dealing with the top of the table. Chelsea should be the solid number three with the talent they have and maybe pushing even higher, but you're talking about Klopp. You're talking about Guardiola. You talk about the other teams that are coming up and we mentioned Everton and Tottenham. Um, You're talking about two outstanding veteran managers and Ancelotti and Mourinho. Mikel Arteta, I would put higher than Frank Lampard as a manager. You've got a lot of people around him that are better managers. So is he going to get the most out of this group? I don't think he is. Isn't that part of that bigger conversation with managers like uh, Jose Mourinho and Ancelotti, you know, taking Everton's and Spurs uh, into the heights that they have? It could also just be because the big teams, these managers in an Oleg and a Solskjaer or Frank Lampard aren't as great, you know, with the big teams. And I think Mikel Arteta, we will find out in the long term, he looks like the answer right now. But for both for Chelsea and Manchester United, it, if they don't do much, which United, of course, we have already talked about Chelsea, if they don't at least get third, I can definitely see Roman go into the market and get the best young manager or somebody out there. Wouldn't you? hundred percent. I think Arsenal got the better young up and coming manager and Abramovich is and not the best one in England. What's that? I think Arsenal have the best one in England, young up and coming manager. Yeah, I, I think yeah. so. I absolutely think so. And if, if Frank Lampard doesn't get them at a minimum third, yeah, you could see him pull the trigger. I mean, he just spent all this money. Does he want to have the wrong person running all of the talent that he just bought? I don't think so. Who would you pick, though, then, for uh, Chelsea manager? Uh, it's just going to depend on who's available at that point. Um, it, it's too early to call. I mean, you're going to need, I think with the talent you have, you need somebody who can manage the personalities. And you're not going to go back to a Mourinho at this point. But you need somebody who can handle all of this talent and keep them engaged, you know, I mean, like the guys around him. I mean, all of those guys fit that profile, you know, Klopp has a bunch of talent. He has to manage Guardiola's had a bunch of talent that he's had to manage and, and keep happy and rotate. And, 
Ancelotti and Mourinho can handle those sorts of things. So I think he needs a veteran hand at the wheel. Um, it'll just depend on who's available at that point. Cause it's not really a project anymore. After you've spent 250 million pounds to build this team. Of course. And I, I think they also kind of overplayed the whole transfer ban uh, nonsense, because I think getting the players that they did uh, in terms of Mount and Pulisic did really make up for the goal contributions that Hazard had had the year before. So We'll find out uh, what Chelsea does. So we know Will and Braden's predictions. So I'm going to come to you, you, Jason. Do you have an updated top four uh, after the transfer window and what you've seen so far? Yeah, um, I still have. I I felt like I've waffled all summer after the season ended and beginning of the, the window and all that about who would win. I think Liverpool should win the league again. Um, I think there's issues at city that I don't know if they can be solved straight away. Uh, Chelsea has to be in the top four and I'll put them at third by default. I don't think Manchester United finishes fourth. Um, that's what I would have said before all of this. I, I don't think they do. I'm going to buy into the hype on Everton. I really am. Um, I think Ancelotti is, is the perfect manager for that group. I think he will get the most out of what he has, which is not as much as the teams around him, which isn't as much as Tottenham or Manchester United to be, to be honest. But I think he might be the perfect manager in the perfect spot to get that group into fourth and into the champions league. I completely agree with that. And so having talked about that, uh, you had picked out James Rodriguez, especially when we came on to, your show, it was, you know, a, a James love story from everyone, and I kind of didn't see it. So I will say I was wrong about that in terms of an impact that he has had. So do you think his uh, transfer is going to be the best in the Premier League this year? Do you think somebody else is going to come back and take that most uh, impactful transfer for the summer award? If they get fourth, it has to be because I don't think they get fourth unless he has the, the kind of year to have the best transfer and he's a free. I mean, it, that's the biggest thing here is, is you, you look at the other big spends. I mean, Tiago could be in that conversation. Uh, Werner or Havertz could be in that conversation. But when you talk about carrying Everton to fourth, which is where I think they'll end up and you did it with a free transfer. Yes. Real Madrid really just wanted to get his salary gone, but still you didn't have to spend any money to bring him in. Uh, that's gotta be the transfer of the year. If Everton gets where I think they can. Okay. I mean, I, I think Tottenham and Gareth Bale might have something to say about that, but again, these two, these two Real Madrid, uh, players for literal dirt cheap, uh, money getting to go into clubs that, they're loved at because at the end of the day, Bale just wasn't happy at uh, Madrid as well as uh, James Rodriguez being with Ancelotti seems like a nice little love story for them. What's up, Braden? You seem very agitated right now. So like we're going to talk about Real Madrid players on the cheap and not even mention Danny Ceballos. No, not <laughs> no, 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 I gave Arsenal tons of love. Okay. Uh, I, I, that pained me a little bit. It did. <laughs> Chelsea ahead of them. 
A step too far, uh, sir. <laughs> I, did, I, I was trying to be realistic with the love that I gave Arsenal. I think they're <laughs> away. Um, but uh, Arteta is going to carry them really far. And I do want to see what Partey does for them. And does he, is he going to bridge the gap a little bit more than maybe we, we thought they might be? It's possible. Um, that four spots, not guaranteed at all for Everton or Tottenham or United, or I think Arsenal's in that mix just as well as anybody else. Um, but I think they're a year away from where they'll be in the top four again. That's fair. I will say it's going to be, <laughs> I, I will not be surprised if we have an absolutely wild table come boxing day. Yeah. Because I, I think like, I just look at Manchester United and they might go winless. Uh, in October. Yeah, we played Newcastle away, PSG away, Chelsea away. Oh, no, Chelsea at home, and then Leipzig at home. And don't, you can't tell me there isn't a realistic chance United don't lose all four. Like, there's a very realistic chance. 100%. So, I, I, I think it could be very, very interesting come uh, 26th of December where this world is and where this... Uh, Premier League table is going to be, but uh, we are going to move on and talk about a topic that has taken everybody by storm. In England, Project Big Picture came as a proposal from the English Premier League clubs, um, and that got viewed as a power grab by some of the bigger clubs fans all over social media giving in their opinions about what they think should or shouldn't happen. But COVID has put a realistic uh, situation in front of our hands. And I think, Jason, you are much better positioned than any of us to comment on what you think is the outlook for football in England as far as the grassroots and the smaller clubs are concerned and what uh, Project Big Picture really is. It's, it's a mess all the way around because without something, I think you could be looking at a number of EFL clubs, uh, long time, historic clubs, uh, running out of money in the next month or two, uh, Leighton Orient's chairman has said that, you know, there's going to be multiple clubs that have about four to five weeks to go right now. The government's not going to bail them out. The government, this has been a long running thing. The government's not going to allow them to have even limited attendance, let alone throw money their way to bail them out. And there's no way that these clubs, especially once you get down to League One and League Two, there's no way they're surviving uh, without fans in the stands. That's the overwhelming majority of their revenue. So they're screwed and, and something has to give. Um, the government has said that the Premier League should be the ones to bail them out. Okay. If the Premier League is going to bail them out and the people who would be driving that conversation are the bigger clubs, they're going to want something in return. And that's what this is. Um, I understand the vitriol against it because it is absolutely a power grab. It is an opportunity to get more power consolidated in the big six. Um, now the big six is, I think a little more fractured than people would say when you, when we start talking in this way, from a business perspective, I don't think Manchester city, Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham, um, Chelsea, have a whole lot of similarities outside of, they have a whole lot of money. 
I think they have different approaches, different mindsets, different histories, different types of owners that will create friction between that group. But basically the thing that everybody is riled up about with the, with this project is it would change the way voting works to where the nine teams that have been in the league, the longest, um, the big six plus the, the next three have been in the longest you would be able, then they would have their own councils. Essentially that'd be half of the premier league. Cause they'd cut down to 18, which is what the Bundesliga is at. But then you could pass anything with six of that nine, you know, kind of funny how those numbers work out. Right. It's to give the big six, the, the control. And there's 14 other clubs in the premier league that don't want to give that right now. And I get it. The problem is if they can't figure something out between the 20 premier league clubs, you're going to have 20 or more EFL clubs that will go out of business. I really think that's what we're staring at here. And if it doesn't happen in the next month or two, it'll happen the next year because this isn't going away anytime soon. I think we can all realize that at this point. So I hope the politics of this, which is exactly what's being played out right now publicly, because you're getting, you know, well, West Ham's against it. Well, you know, the EFL is pushing for it. Well, the EFL is telling these teams that if they can't get the votes, then they can just withdraw from the premier league, which technically they could, and then just join the EFL and the EFL will create a super league. And that's not realistic, but right now, anything's on the table because it's, it's just absolute chaos. There are things that I like about it. And I'd, I'd love to hear from, from you guys on this because you follow England a lot closer than, than I do on a day to day getting rid of the Carabao cup, um, getting rid of the community shield, which I don't know if that's really a necessity cutting down to 18 teams. I think from a competitive structure standpoint, those are the major elements here. The loan thing and being able to loan more players. We'll put that to the side for a minute. The way the league is structured, going to 18, going to a Bundesliga style relegation playoff game where you can win your way to stay in. If you're the, I guess you'd be 16th in the table um, and getting rid of the care about cup. How do you guys feel about that element of this project? Because the money's good. The 25% as opposed to 8% of shareable revenues going to the EFL. That's good money going to the FA money, going to the FA women's super league and the women's championship and grassroots. All that's good. Those things, no problem. I don't think anybody's arguing it. People seem to be upset about the voting changes and the competitive structure changes. That's what is, is the, the biggest controversy right now. I agree with you. I think uh, there are certain aspects of this that would really, really change uh, for the better the English game as we currently know it. And it might not look as such right now, but uh, we already know that the championship playoff has gathered a lot of momentum over the last couple of years, I think a lot of my friends who didn't used to watch the championship do definitely watch the playoffs now. And I think if you can include a Premier League team to get some of the interest and the viewership from there into the playoffs, that could really galvanize, you know, just the playoffs into something special uh, in terms of a money-making mechanism for, I guess, all the commercial uh, TV rights deals. But as far as the competitive edge goes, do you, Braden, I'm going to come to you and then will, do you think like having less teams and less games along with Carabao cup being gone is good? Cause I think have 
Karabakha being gone does really take away uh, a lot of the youngsters' chances. So which is why I think the loan increase becomes another aspect that kind of balances itself out. So Braden and then Will, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I'm personally fine with Carabao Cup going. Um, I am ambivalent about whether it's 18 or 20. I don't think it really makes that much of a difference, to be honest. Like it's you're talking about four less fixtures, which. OK, um, I don't know that it makes that much of a difference as far as I do you get an extra week of a winter break. Like what I know they're talking about European fixtures with that, which it's probably the end goal of this, right, is to move to the European Super League, which is the boogeyman over in the corner um, for a while now for these sorts of things, which I don't know. I, I, I'm not really for that in general. I, I would, I'm fine with getting rid of the Carabao Cup. I'm fine with you know, 18 teams. The Super League, I could take a leave, which isn't really part of this immediately. But it it, it's is. not hard to see where it's going. It, it kind of is. I'm glad you mentioned that. But and sorry, Will. I, I I'm not trying to jump in over you here, but the, the tying that into it is important because it depends on how they do it and as to how I'll feel about it. If they do the Super League, if they do it as basically an expanded Champions League, so you're you're losing four regular season fixtures and you're losing the the Carabao Cup games. And let's, let's just take it simply the league fixtures. Let's say instead of playing um, 38 in league and, and whatever you play in champions league, you're adding four more champions league games. If it's not a true super league, but it's just adding to the champions league. Is that good or bad for you? Or, or do you care? I I don't know how I feel about that. Like I, I kind of take it or leave it to be honest. I, I don't think it makes that much of a difference. Especially with that third tournament coming in. Now that is something I don't want to be around at all. That's the (laughs) in the room. I mean, Manchester United definitely about to be like, hey, we represent England in this new tournament. Will, how do you feel about this whole situation as it currently stands? Okay, y'all know I'm the weird one, so let me come with the weirdness. Um, The Carabao Cup is what people is what's being on the table is being abolished. I think that's probably not the best idea because that still gives EFL teams a chance to get that gate in the future from playing a Premier League club under the lights, which is what the tournament was initially set up for so they could play under lights and have another trophy. I think that there's another trophy that should go away that could leave space for that Carabao Cup, and I don't think anyone's paying attention to it. There is the EFL trophy that like the EFL has to play for that no one attends and is not a thing that people pay attention to. And if you cut that out, you could keep the Carabao Cup, keep the money you have coming in. As far as 18 teams go, that's what they wanted initially. And they got talked down from 22 to 20. They wanted 18 back in 1992. I don't see a problem with it because it also creates another game that gives broadcasters money, more gate uh, for that playoff. Uh, If you're the 16th place team, You'd play a team of the championship to see if you could stay up or not. It creates more gate, more excitement for fans. I know there's some voting things and the European massive super league always hangs over the head. And I don't know how I feel about that, but 
my my one take is get rid of the EFL trophy and you can keep the Carabao Cup and the money would stay the same because none of those EFL teams make anything off that anyway. No, I, I no. can't get behind that because EFL trophy is for below championship level and that's kind of where the Carabao Cup is. Like I think for a League One, League Two team, I think the FA trophy matters more than like the championship teams. Um, but maybe I'm maybe I'm putting more into that than I really should. <laughs> it is very sparsely attended. I can tell you that much. Sure. I mean, I, I do want to point out about the EFL trophy though that I all, all our clubs send in our under twenty threes to play in there, and the. Ultimately, like the club is not just going to have to worry about the first team and what goes on in the first team. You kind of have to look at a top down in terms of how this is going to affect us from what you're saying. Well, if you take away the EFL trophy, a lot of these kids who are already moving away from the clubs at a very young age to get exposure like a Jaden Sancho, like a Jude Bellingham we saw, I think they're going to even more so move into for, uh, countries and clubs outside of England, which is which would create a different sort of a problem for them if they remove uh, EFL trophy and such. But as far as the Premier League is concerned, I think missing out on four games, uh, Braden, I know you said it doesn't necessarily matter. All I'll say is like when these players have to uh, go through those back-to-back games and, you know, Christmas and stuff, if they could just give it a little bit more time. I think that in and of itself makes it a huge difference and just the way England works and the league, the way it comes out. So there are, go ahead. So I cynically, I don't think that's what the Premier League would do. I think they would still cram oh, of course in those not. pictures of course not. down that area and like give them an extra <laughs> week in the beginning of February or something. I mean, the Premier League is going to always be out there trying to make the most money. So, Jason, as a last final prediction uh, on the show, do you think, um, as it is, as as the project currently is, uh, it's going to pass? Or do you think there will be enough opposition from uh, non-political factors that are going to make sure it does not pass? I think there's enough opposition to block it right now. And I don't think there's the real option of the premier league, the the big six teams pulling out of the premier league and joining the EFL. I think that's a pipe dream. So they're going to have to give something. It's not going to pass as it is because the other 14 are not going to give up the power to the six. It's just not going to happen. Um, I think you also have the the teams that are at the bottom that are at threat of being relegated in a 20 team league who don't want to basically relegate themselves by going to 18. Um, I do think there's a lot of good things in the project that the league should look at. And I hope that whatever compromise they come to, because I do think the pressure will be on them to have a compromise because again, I mean, the need is just, it's not going away for the EFL teams. They need this bailout money. They, they need better support from the premier league. It needs to be better connected, but you're not going to make the politics work with 14 against six. You're just not. And I don't know. Okay. Maybe you feel like because you're throwing a bone to the three teams that have been in the longest that it's nine versus 11, 
you still got to find five more votes because you have to have 14 votes for anything like this to pass. You're not finding them to go to then an 18 team league. Like it's just, it doesn't, I don't see any way it happens, but what happens instead? I don't know. And something has to, or you're late in Orient, you're, you know, your Boltons, who's already, you know, near death, your, your, your yeah. clubs at that level are, are just not going to make it. And I don't think that would be a good thing for the Premier League to take the blame for either. So they're going to have to figure something out. But as it stands with the big six getting the power, that's not going to pass. So I am curious about um, how some of these smaller clubs will look at the parachute payments provision of this, because I think that's a very kind of fundamental change of this where you know, we're not going to do these big payments to the clubs that get relegated. It's just, just going to be distributed to the lower clubs, which is very good for the EFL structure as a whole, I think. And I think that some of the teams that are kind of like maybe a Fulham, maybe a West Brom that yo-yo up and down, I, I think that they may find that that could be appealing. Um, just because if if you're ever down there for more than like one or two years, it's it's better for you, I think, instead of just the parachute payments. Yeah, I think the parachute payments have had a a somewhat negative effect because you get the the issues that you have in the championship. I mean, you don't really have them as much with League One and League Two, and they do have some form of a cap now and that would be another element is there would be a hard cap across all three divisions. Um, you, the parachute payments have created the situation in the championship where almost every team spends more than they bring in on, on salary. They, they spend more than their overall revenues on their salaries for their players. And that's not sustainable. There's no way that can last. And that's why you get a Portsmouth. That's why you get a, Sheffield Wednesday. That's why you had a leads happen to leads. I mean, that's why you had those things getting rid of parachute payments overall. Like it will create more division, I think between the premier league and the championship, but it will create everybody else being more sustainable outside of the premier league. Cause they'll have to be, uh, there won't be that, that fear of if we stay down for more than a year and we miss our, our parachute payments run out, then we're trapped and it'll keep clubs, I think from overspending in those moments, I hope anyway. And I also think Leeds is showing a different way. I mean, Leeds has spent money coming back up. They know they're going to make more money being in the premier league, but they didn't spend stupid money. I mean, they, they spent smartly and they built a project that could move up. And the players who are, are standing out right now are not the, the big money signings. It's, it's the guys that came up with them they're showing a different way that I hope other clubs look at and, and see that you can do that and build and be sustainable. So I will say this, and this is the sad part about football and the reality of football right now that at the end of the day, this is business. And as we have talked about repeatedly, like the EFL clubs need this and the government isn't going to come and save them. So it, it might be a terrible way to look at this, but like the, big six and the other, I guess, anybody in the Premier League who doesn't or who supports the new bill, they really hold the power right now because ultimately like the the 
Uniteds, the Liverpools, they can all just stand there and be like, hey, you guys were the ones who voted no. You know, and they are the ones who are like they can always point the finger towards the people who are not going to. So do are you optimistic about an agreement or do you think it's kind of still far away? I'm I'm optimistic because I think the Premier League will be shamed into something. Um they they have to do something because if you look around Europe, the the big clubs in the Bundesliga, for example created a solidarity fund. The the big four there created a solidarity fund for the lower divisions and for the, the women's, the Frauen Bundesliga teams that were not connected to Bundesliga clubs. It's like the independent women's teams or lower division women's teams that had played into the first division. They created a solidarity fund to distribute money to them. Uh, the, the top clubs in the Netherlands did the same thing. And it's, it's a, it's a vital piece right now, because if it doesn't happen, you're going to have the grassroots, the, the, the neighborhood clubs that are in the EFL, they're, they're going to go away and the premier league is going to take the blame that there's just no way around it. I mean, you can't, you can't spin it with Chelsea spending 250 million pounds in this transfer window and then saying, well, yeah, we don't want to give anything to the, the EFL. Like they, they can't spend that and make it work. Um, they'll either get forced into it or get shamed into it, but they'll do something. I just think this is the first step is, okay, you want us to do something here? Give, then give us all the power and that's going to get voted down. What is the solution? What's the compromise? I don't know what that's going to be just yet. Yeah, I think it is going to be very, very fascinating to uh, follow how COVID keeps affecting uh, football and the economy in general, because the longer this continues, the longer fans are not in the stadiums, the worse it's going to get and more desperation is going to creep in because we've already seen um, clubs run out of money in England before COVID. And I think now it could only accelerate the process. But I'll say this, and it it kind of brings us a full circle because we start about uh, talking with transfers um, initially. I think there is going to come a time when uh, you go, people are going to look back and look at this window and say that there were there was a reason why a lot of teams did not spend because I think financially there are a lot of teams that even the bigger. Uh, clubs in terms of Manchester United, Arsenal and such who were needed to balance their books and make sure that in case something really bad happened to football, uh, they are they at least financially would not uh, kind of get screwed the way maybe even a Leeds United did back in the day. With that, it brings us to an end of this week's brilliant podcast with our guest Jason Longshore. Uh, Jason, if you want to share any uh and all of your social media and how they can get to connect with your podcast as well as the live streams. Yeah. You can uh, follow me on all social media at long shoe and you can follow soccer down here uh, at soccer down here and uh, soccer over there is our, our Monday night show where we dig deeper into England and Jarrett talks about Celtic and Scotland from time to time. And Nick yells My about man. on <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll start talking about South American leagues and things get out of hand. And we always have a Nicholas Bentner update for some reason. And 
It's oh, his new book had just came out. <laughs> it, there, it's been story weeks <laughs> out of this book. And it's like uh, it was first the reality show in Denmark, and now it's this book story with about 27 different things. Thierry Henry yelling at him, Arsene Wenger making him cry, um, oh all kinds of other salacious things. It's madness. Uh, but that's soccer over there. That's Monday nights at 7 o'clock. And all of our shows you can watch on Twitch, twitch.tv slash soccer down here and subscribe on all your podcatchers all right thank you once again jason for uh coming back and joining us and suffering through another episode with the three of us (laughs) it's fun it's always fun to to catch up and and learn a little something about the premier league all right thank you and uh for all the listeners please make sure to subscribe and uh we'll catch you later in the week with some more betting nuggets and some betting updates of what we can expect from this weekend's Premier League action, especially with all the COVID updates we're getting out of the Portuguese camp. Wolves might not have a full team to put out onto this weekend's Premier League fixture. So on that note, that's it from the boys and Jason. Thank you so much. See you. See you soon.